Good morning. Nice to hear the enthusiasm. You're all very welcome. And we do hope uh, the, the weather's looking really promising. It wasn't uh, yesterday, but the weather's looking very promising to close again with singing together. So uh, assuming the weather holds up, we'll pick up the song sheets, which are somewhere by the door, and then we'll, we'll sing around the back. If the weather turns bad, we'll just defer back to the musicians. And then we are meeting again uh, this evening at 6 p.m. to continue looking at Matthew's Gospel. And that will be followed by youth discipleship after the service. On Thursday, we have our online prayer time, 7.45, uh, for about an hour or so. So you're very welcome to join us uh, for that. You won't be forced to pray if you come. But uh, if you haven't been before, I'd encourage you to come this week. And then just uh, some thanks to pass on. First of all, Don Westwood asked 
if I would pass on thanks to you for your prayers and concern during uh, both in the lead up to and now in the recovery from his recent surgery. So thank you for uh, your prayers and concern for Dawn. And then also uh, Pat Davies has given me a card which normally we'd put on the, the board, but since you're less likely to be able to see that, let me just read it for you. It says, I would like to express my sincere thanks to all my church family, Pelsall Evangelical Church, for all your prayers, help, support, advice, cards, and telephone calls since my sister Violet was called home to be with the Lord. Many thanks, too, to all who took part in the Thanksgiving service and the preparations for that. I am immensely grateful to all. Every blessing, Pat. We come to worship a great God, and our first song encourages us to tell out the greatness of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father in heaven, we come to you as our Savior. And you have rescued us from the land of slavery into a life where we are free to follow your will. We forget so easily what it was to be slaves to sin without a future. But you paid for our freedom with the blood of Jesus. And now we have a master who loves us deeply. But we're puzzled as well, Lord. Why did you choose us? What was there so lovable about us? We will never know. But we know that you are faithful and that we can be sure of your love for the rest of our life, for eternity. But Father God, we also realize that you are a jealous God who doesn't accept half-heartedness you want us to be holy, different, and fully focused on you. And Lord God, we have to admit that so many times our dedication to do your will is challenged 
by our attachment to worldly goods and our attraction to worldly behavior. Just looking back to last week, there were so many times where we did not glorify your name, so many situations where we did not show your character, so many opportunities where we failed to do your will. We ask you for forgiveness. And we can do it in full assurance that you are faithful to forgive. And we ask for your spirit to renew us and give us strength to overcome our sinful nature in the week ahead. Father, we ask you to bless Tim as he brings your word of life. Give us open minds that we will be filled with your words of love and attentive hearts that we want that want to follow your instructions. And Father, we thank you for the gradual return to normal life with the COVID infections in retreat. We pray for all people involved in the vaccination campaign and for those who care for the sick. We pray for those who have been hard hit by the pandemic, by loss of income, by loneliness, by loss of health or loss of loved ones. Father, we thank you for the seasons. It's not laws of nature that display the beauty of spring around us, but it's your life sustaining power at work in each flower and in each bird. We thank you with Megan and her family that her father was able to go back to Florida and that the damage to his heart was limited. We pray for those in our midst who struggle with ill health who are painfully reminded that this life on earth is not eternal. We pray for those who are fighting cancer, and in particular for Pat Sold. We pray that the consultation tomorrow clarifies what treatment is needed. We pray for Sue Bradley that soon effective treatment can be started. We pray for Carol Whitehouse that her treatment will be effective. We pray for Mike Elliott, that the pain caused by his condition can be managed. And we pray that too for Jenny Christopher, now her medication is being adjusted. We pray for Stu and Louise, that there's still no clear diagnosis for his lung problem. We pray for Elsie Boyton, that she may recover fully. Lord God, you know all these situations and many more. We pray that you give doctors wisdom and give our brothers and sisters the assurance that their life is safe in your hands. Father, we lay all this before your throne, knowing that you hear us. In your name we pray. Amen. In a few moments, we'll be hearing from the book of Deuteronomy about how God loves to pour out blessings on his people. We're going to hear that same truth from the New Testament now. We're going to read from the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every heavenly realms with blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to be the praise of his glory. As Paul lists all those blessings, he tells us they all come to us through Jesus Christ. And our next song points us to Jesus strong and kind. Sunday school will be moving next door.
Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. When we looked at the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, we said the rest of the book of Deuteronomy is essentially an explanation and application of the Ten Commandments. We began to see that last week in chapter 6. Chapter 6 dealt with what Jesus called the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. That's an application of the first of the Ten Commandments, which says you shall have no other gods before me. And this application of the first commandment continues in our passage this morning. What we find in chapter 7 is a call to war against the idols. The Israelites will soon be crossing the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And when they get there, their main task is going to be war. And as we'll see, although our circumstances are not quite the same as Israel's, they're different in many ways, but we still have the same war to fight. So let's read all of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses says to the people, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb the crops of your land, your corn, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks in the land that he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt but he will inflict them, on, inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. 
the Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand, and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. This is God's word. And it tells us three things about the war God's people are called to. We learn how this war is to be fought. We learn the purpose of the war. And we learn its timetable. First of all, how the war is to be fought. It must be a ruthless war. Notice though, right at the beginning, the Lord is the one initiating and driving this war. You can see that in verse 1. He's the one who brings the Israelites into the land. He's the one who will drive out the nations who are currently in the land. And in verse 2, he's the one who will deliver them over to Israel. It's the Lord's war. And Israel is called to participate in that war. But we need to pause here and ask, who or what exactly is the target of this war? Is this what today would be called genocide or ethnic cleansing? Is it a war against a particular nationality or racial group? Well, it might initially seem that way. Verse 1 mentions seven nations or people groups. Now, those aren't all the Canaanite peoples. This is a representative sample. But it turns out the Lord is going to war against these people not because of their nationality, but because of their sin. Specifically, their worship of false gods and all the other evils that went along with that false worship. In fact, the clearest proof that the issue here is sin and not nationality is the very last verse of chapter 7. Verse 26, God tells the Israelites themselves, if you commit yourselves to the same sins as the people of the land, you'll be destroyed too. So this is about war against all those who choose idols instead of the Lord. Idols are going down. All of them are, along with all who cling to them. We know those who turned from idols had nothing to fear in this war. We know that because later, as the book of Joshua records the conquest of the land, in the very first city the Israelites come to, in the city of Jericho, we find Rahab and her family from Jericho joining the Israelites in worshiping the Lord. And they are saved. Those who turn from idols have nothing to fear in this war. And we've already had proof of that in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 5, the fourth commandment made provision for the foreigner residing in your towns. The Sabbath is for them too, God says. So foreigners are not the problem here. Idols are the problem. This war is against those who cling to idols, 
not those who turn away from them. And another aspect to this is that the war is only directed against those idol worshippers who try to stay in the land that Israel has been promised. Verse 1 mentions people being driven out of the land. And there's no indication Israel is to pursue those people to destroy them. Certainly on their way to where they are currently, the Israelites pass through the land of the Edomites, the land of the Moabites, and the land of the Ammonites. And God gave the Israelites clear instructions not to make war on those peoples. We saw that in chapter 2. So this war is about making the promised land of Canaan an idol-free place. If idol worshippers choose to leave the land, they can leave. Verses 3 and 4 emphasize again, this is about getting rid of false worship. The reason Israelites are not to let their children intermarry with other nations is not to do with racial issues. Intermarriage is forbidden because, the Lord says in verse 4, they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. The problem is not interracial marriage. The problem is marriage between someone who worships idols and someone who worships the Lord. Moses' own wife, Zipporah, is descended from the Midianites, one of the Canaanite peoples. But Zipporah is a worshiper of the Lord. Exodus records how she personally circumcised their son as a sign of commitment to the Lord, and she did that because Moses had omitted to do it. Zipporah's ethnic background is not an issue because she worships the Lord. But later on, when Israel is in the land, Solomon is a perfect example of why God's people are not to intermarry with idolaters. Not then and not today either. First Kings says, Solomon's foreign wives turned his heart after other gods. The focus here is always on the problem of idolatry. That's clearest of all in verse 5. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. Idol worship didn't just involve bowing down to statues. It was accompanied by child sacrifice and prostitution. All of that was trying to manipulate the gods into providing fertility. Fertile wombs and fertile fields. The sacred stones represented male deities in Canaanite religion. And the Asherah poles represented the female deity. And the idol worship that went on with all the sex that accompanied it, it was about encouraging the gods to respond in the same way. So that the land and the people would be fruitful. Idol worship looks to false gods to provide what only the true God can give. And in Canaan, it involved evil practices that turned the stomach of the true God. So God's people are to join him in his war against the idols. They are to be his instruments of war. So that his chosen people can live in his chosen place, free from idols, worshipping the Lord alone. And if we ask, how does this translate into the situation of God's people today? The simple answer is, the church of Jesus Christ is to be an idol-free zone. Today, God's people are not a nation. The church is made up of men and women from every nation. And we're not entering a land where God is going to live among us in his temple. The New Testament says we are God's temple. God lives among us as a people. It's not about a geographical location. 
So the situation has changed considerably. We're not an army with physical weapons trying to take over a place on the map. But God's intolerance for idols has not changed a bit. And neither has our calling to join him in his war against the idols. The closing chapters of the Bible tell us God's new heaven and earth will be an idol-free zone. It tells us those who cling to idols will have no place there. And so, as the people of God journeying towards that future, we're to break down and smash every idol in the church. The idols outside the church are not our business. The idols inside are very much our business. And this war against the idols starts in our own hearts. We've seen in previous weeks, when we talk about idols, little wooden statues are just the tip of the iceberg. An idol is anything we put in God's place. It's worshipping something that's not God as if it were God. And if we think that Deuteronomy uses tough language when it talks about cutting down and burning things that lead us astray, listen to Jesus' words. His words are equally uncompromising. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. We can never accuse Jesus of toning things down. He repeats the call to a ruthless war. In fact, if anything, Jesus cranks it up by making it so personal. Calling us to deal radically with whatever turns us away from him. And that certainly includes any relationship that will turn us away from him. Including any prospective marriage partner who isn't a Christian. Or who claims to be a Christian but isn't committed to loving God with their heart, soul, and strength. Someone who claims to be a Christian but has no genuine Christian commitment, that person will turn you away from following the Lord just as much as a loud and proud idolater will. Don't kid yourself about that. Lots of people have kidded themselves to their great misery in the long run. Don't be satisfied if someone ticks the Christian box. Look at their life. Are they living for idols or living for the Lord? When Jesus returns... He will return as the conquering warrior king. And he will take care of every idol that remains, inside or outside the church. And he'll destroy all those who cling to the idol. That's what Jesus will do. Our job in the meantime is to fight a ruthless war against every idol in our heart. Cut off whatever leads us into sin. And equally important, we need to know why we're fighting this war. It's war for the sake of relationship. Look how verse 6 gives the reason for the fight that's been mentioned in verses 1 to 5. Smash and burn the idols for or because... You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you 
out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's people fight a ruthless war against idols in order to enjoy the greatest love. Not to earn that love, but to enjoy it. Here Moses says to Israel, the Lord chose you and redeemed you from slavery, not because there was anything special about you. He chose and redeemed you because he wanted to. And he did it not half-heartedly, not because he's God and he had to have something to do with his creation. He had to show a token interest. No. He chose you to be his treasured possession. The term is used elsewhere to refer to a king's private fortune, his personal treasure. But remarkably here, the greatest king, the almighty king, says to his people, you're my personal treasure. So when God's people turn away from idols to give him their total love, it's not a case of letting go of something wonderful for something we hope will be equally wonderful. No, it's letting go of something that can never really satisfy for something that is infinitely satisfying. Enjoying the love the great king pours out on his personal treasure. I hope you can see the book of Deuteronomy is really about a two-way relationship of love. We can miss that among all the commands in the book. But this book is all about nurturing and enjoying this relationship of love. Earlier we read from Ephesians chapter 1, which actually picks up the language of verses 6 to 8 and applies it to the church of Jesus Christ. A people drawn now from every nation. And in Christ, this chosen people are God's possession. We are the treasure he has redeemed. We're the treasure he delights to lavish his love on. And so, we fight a ruthless war against idols because idols come between us and the God who loves us. Idols are a joy-killing cancer in our relationship with God. We turn from the fake love that idols give us with its short-lived joy that ends in destruction. We turn away from that and we take care to follow the Lord's instruction so that we can enjoy the greatest love, the love of our faithful God. The war against idols is about enjoying the greatest love and the greatest blessing. Verses 12 to 16 list lots of blessings, fruitful wombs, abundant crops, flourishing herds and flocks, health. Altogether, it's a picture of prosperity. And to get what's being said here, it's helpful to realize the words used for these blessings are quite unusual terms. They actually double up as names of Canaanite gods, sometimes with slightly different spellings. So, for example, in verse 13, the word translated corn is actually Dagon, the name of a Canaanite god. In the same verse, the word translated lambs is actually Ashtoreth, the name of another Canaanite god. What's the point of playing with words like that? Well, the point is, all the blessings listed in these verses 
are blessings that Dagon and Ashtoreth and Beal and Molech are supposed to provide. That's what the people who worship them hope to get from them. But in reality, these blessings are not theirs to give. All these blessings come from the Lord. And when idol worshippers receive these things, they're benefiting from what theologians call God's common grace. Meaning, the good things God pours out indiscriminately on all humanity. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said his Father in heaven causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Every blessing anyone ever receives comes from God. It's a tragedy when people receive those blessings and they don't give thanks. Or, as in the case of the Canaanites, they give thanks to the wrong source, thinking their idols gave them the blessing. All blessings come from the Lord, and he promises that his faithful people will be blessed more than any other people. You can see that in verse 14. As wonderful as God's common grace is, his special grace for his people is even more wonderful. We turn from idols and we do what's necessary to get rid of our idols because we want to enjoy the greatest blessing. The blessing that comes to those in exclusive relationship with the God who loves us. We might wonder, in these verses, is this a promise that childlessness will be completely eradicated from God's people? That disease will be completely eradicated as we sit here with our masks on? Is this a promise that crop failure will be completely eradicated among God's people? The Bible is very clear God's blessings are not like a mechanical vending machine where you put in your money or you hold up your debit card and a bottle of Coke drops into the hatch for you. The book of Job is in the Bible to show it doesn't work that way with God's blessings. While we live in this broken world, our own lives will be touched by brokenness of one kind or another. Faithfulness to God won't operate like a vending machine that pops out sugary sweetness every time we put in the right coin. Sometimes our faithfulness seems to result in nothing at all. Or sometimes what drops out of the hatch is bitter lemons instead of sweet lemonade. Faithfulness seems to make life worse. The Bible describes Job as blameless and upright. But he had to go through a whole lot of bitter loss. There are plenty of other examples. The book of 1 Samuel begins with a faithful lady called Hannah who was childless. The Bible does not promise that faithfulness will be rewarded with instant blessing. Delivered with mechanical precision. But it does promise blessing in the end. Blessing came to Job in the end. It came to Hannah in the end. It will come to all God's faithful people in the end. In the storyline of the whole Bible, the perfect enjoyment of God's blessing comes in his new heaven and earth. That's when every idol will finally have been destroyed. Our love for God will be perfect and unhindered. And all our brokenness will finally and perfectly be healed. 
And for these Israelites camped by the Jordan River, the blessings promised here are not going to be instant. There's a long road ahead with many battles before they'll finally be settled in the promised land, able to sow crops and raise herds and flocks. You can see that in verse 16, where after listing the blessings, God says, you must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. Yes, there's the promise of blessing in the end, but first there's the war to fight. But now we know why it's worth fighting this ruthless war. It's a war for the sake of relationships. We have a God who loves us, who redeemed us from slavery to be his treasured possession. And so we fight against every idol that distracts us and waylays us. We fight because we want to enjoy the greatest love and the greatest blessing. The love and blessing enjoyed in exclusive relationship with our Lord. The final section of our passage underlines the truth we've already begun to see. The war God's people are called to is a long-term war. And so, it calls for trust, because the battles seem unwinnable. Look at verse 17. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. This generation of Israelites is going to face the same fear of failure their parents' generation faced. Earlier in this book, we learned that their parents got to the edge of Canaan 38 years before this. But they turned back in fear. Never mind persevering through lots of battles, they wouldn't fight the first one. And this new generation will face the same temptation to give up before they even start. The job seems too big. The obstacles seem too many. And our own war with idolatry can seem that way too. We hear this call to war and it just seems too daunting, too involved. How can I break down the things my heart clings to instead of God? How can I smash my reliance on other people's affirmation? Maybe it's a particular person's approval that I live for. A relationship that means more to me than God does. We might think, how can I possibly smash the fear that rules over me? Or the greed that drives me to want more and more. Or the addiction that has its claws deep into me. Or the bitterness that's poisoning me, but I cling to it all the same. We can look at the battles and give up before we start. But the Lord says... Trust me. Trust that my strength is enough to carry you through these battles ahead of you. I brought Israel out of Pharaoh's clutches. At the time, that seemed an impossible thing. 
And I'm the same great and awesome God who did that. I can deal with the things that seem to have you in their power. Verse 20 mentions the Lord sending the hornet among Israel's enemies. Now that may be a literal promise of large wasps, but I think it's more likely this is making the point that the Lord will be relentless in going after Israel's enemies. Like a swarm of hornets are relentless. One scholar suggests we translate the hornet as the smasher. That fits the idea that as we seek to obey the Lord by smashing every idol, he will be with us to make sure they smash. It's a long-term war, and so it calls for trust and commitment. We have to trust God's ability to smash every idol, and we have to commit to staying the course till they are all smashed. We'd love it, wouldn't we, if the war could be an afternoon's work. Just say a prayer and it's done. Or maybe even the work of a month or two. But it's not. In these final verses, God tells more about the total victory he will achieve. But he starts in verse 22 by saying, The Lord your God will drive out these nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you. That seems strange. Couldn't the Lord deal with the wild animals too? Surely they are no bigger a challenge than the people of Canaan. But there it is. It's the Lord's war. He knows the best way to total victory. And he says the best way is little by little. God's sense of timing doesn't often correspond to ours. But his timing is the only perfect timing. And in his perfect timing, he says, victory will be little by little. It will be total victory in the end, but it will not come quickly. And so God's people are called to long-term commitment. It's not about rousing yourself for a few days or even a few years. This is a lifelong war. It's a war that we win little by little, one day at a time. That's not what Israel would have chosen. It's not what you and I would choose. But in God's perfect timing, it's what he has chosen. He has his reasons, and they are perfectly wise. He has his purposes. And they are perfectly good. It will be a long-term war, so you and I need to commit ourselves for the long term. When we lose a battle against our idols, we don't decide the war is impossible, and we may as well keep the idols and cozy up to them. No, that's the way to destruction. When we lose a battle, we don't give up the war. We remember it's a long-term thing. We get up from wherever we've fallen down in defeat. We renew our trust in God's power and we renew our own commitment to fight. And we do it with his promise in our hearts that one day every false god will be smashed. Everything that tries to take God's place will be gone. His people will enjoy his love and blessing completely. There will no longer be anything to come between God and his treasured possession. 
Let's pray. Father, if we heard this command to fight without also hearing your promises, we would be overwhelmed. We'd be demoralized. How could we overcome the things that threaten to take your place in our hearts? How could we beat the things that divert our affections from you? Without Jesus, we'd have no hope. And if any of us this morning are trying to change our lives without Jesus, show us how hopeless that is. But we thank you that your commands in Scripture come to redeemed people. For the Israelites, it was redemption brought about by the Exodus. For us, it's redemption brought about by the cross. And now, in Christ... We are your treasured possession. And this command to fight comes to us along with your promise to win the fight for us. So help us trust your promise. Help us respond with commitment. Help us to fight a ruthless war against the things that lead us away from you. Give us a new taste for your love. Give us a taste for your love that spurs us on in this war because we want you above anything or anyone else. Amen. Looks like the weather is holding up really well, so we're going to respond to God's word by singing two songs together. I will glory in my Redeemer, and then, O oh, great God of highest heaven. So we'll follow the musicians out and pick up a song sheet as you go.